You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising Programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. And of course, as you may have heard recently here on the show, these may be the final episodes of Revision Path. So in order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thank you for your support. And of course, a huge thanks to those of you who have already donated. As you know, we're trying to raise $50,000 by the end of the year. As of this episode, we've raised a little over 12%, so hopefully we can get the rest of that by the end of the year. So if you are able to, please donate. Every single donation counts. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Jonathan Patterson. Jonathan is a freelance senior product design generalist in the metropolitan Detroit area. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. All right. So I guess I'll give you the uh, elevator pitch. I'm the invisible hand that crafts the products you rely on daily. You know, often we don't know who's behind the things we touch and interact with. And I mean that in the virtual and the physical sense. So, you know, whether it's the buttons you click to play your favorite podcast or the home screen of a service that you subscribe to, I design and make sure everything is where you expect it to be and make it look good in the process. So I've got a BFA in visual communications from Kendall College of Art and Design, which is essentially graphic design. And over the years, I've slowly morphed my interest and my focus to kind of like pace or sometimes exceed where the industry is headed so I can stay competitive. But these days, I've moved completely into product design generalization. So instead of having one focus like user experience design, I do all of the skills that are closely related to design that launching a product or service usually requires. You know, as a full-time freelance product design journalist, my goal is to really have a variety of skills that when you total them up, they make what I have to offer kind of more comprehensive and fine-tuned than anyone who's just doing one part of the product design stack. 
So Jonathan Patterson, two decades of experience, first podcast interview. Let's go. <laughs> Looking back at this year, what are three words that you'd use to describe how 2023 has been for you? I would say revolutionary, difficult. <laughs> well, this is not a word or more of a phrase, kind of par for the course. Okay. How has it been par for the course? Par for the course, meaning there's always something changing. Nothing stays the same, mm -hmm. which is especially true in technology, right? And I think any business owner, which, you know, as a freelancer, full-time freelancer, I certainly look at myself as a business owner, but there's always a challenge to contend with. So par for the course means it's while we have certain types of challenges this mm -hmm. year, there's always a challenge to contend with. Yeah. Well, the only thing constant in the world is change, as the saying goes. And I think those three words are a really good way to sum up <laughs> 2023, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. Everywhere you look online, it's people posting about the tech layoffs and their job being downsized or eliminated, or can you help me get a job? Or that's what I'm seeing a lot of. Yeah. Do you have any goals that you'd like to accomplish for next year? Like any resolutions? For next year, I think one of the things that I've been sort of indexing on is just starting something, I suppose, of my own on the side. Now, while I have a lot of different fun side projects that I've done here and there, I think that's probably one of my objectives you know, for the upcoming year is to start something maybe that is more official outside of the full-time freelance product design work that I do. It could be a product or service. I have many ideas about what those could be. I keep a running list of things that I'm, that I'm considering and just ideas that I'm vetting. I think that's probably one of the focuses that I will uh, put some thought around soon. Now, you just did a talk recently. Um, there was an event in uh, Detroit called IXD2 put on by AIGA Detroit. Shout out to Carlos and the folks there. Tell me about the event. How did it go? It went well. That was a first annual, we'll call it. It's called IXD2, which is the Interaction Design Detroit Conference, and it will be held annually. So I actually talked about how to stop ghosting your side projects. Mm. And basically, I gave five tips that I've used to kind of see my projects from start to finish. So it was actually a whole day of different speakers and panelists and workshops. So mine was towards the end of a 12-hour, probably around their day, but it went good. It was well-received. Well it will continue into the coming years, as far as I understand. So I'd be excited to uh, go back or, you know, I was a speaker this time, but if I'm not a speaker next time or if not involved next time, I'll certainly be uh, happy to attend it. Now, was this a, a new talk that you created? It was, and it was relatively in short order too. I think that between the time that I came to understand that they were interested in perhaps putting on some type of event like this, and the time the event actually occurred was just a matter of a, a couple months. So I kind of last minute put together some ideas and the presentation, it ended up coming together. I probably would have talked about something else besides like how to stop ghosting a side project, but again, due to the time constraints. It's just like, okay, well, let me see what I can do that will uh, perhaps resonate with people. And as I also come to understand, I, you know, I tend to try to uh, get feedback from people after I do a presentation or a talk or something like that, just because it's always good to be 
sharpening your skills wherever you can. One of the things I heard was that people liked the variety that my presentation provided. You know, there was a lot of, as you might expect from the title, interaction design. There were a lot of presentations and talks about like processes and user experience specifically and into the weeds of those types of things. Mine was a bit more general and sort of lighter. Mm -hmm. So I heard that people like that kind of component of my presentation. And I also say for anybody who perhaps has is listening to this and who saw that presentation that I did put a lot of emphasis on the design of the presentation itself, because so often I find that, and this is just an easy thing for us designers to fall into for some reason, that when you're doing a presentation, you don't necessarily design it to your you know best ability. Rather, you're just like so focused on the content that you sort of let the design go by the wayside. And I'm like, okay, I can't let that happen this time. This is specifically a, a design conference. So I'm definitely going to make sure that I put equal focus on what I'm saying, what I'm presenting, as well as what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So the design is very, you know, it's kind of contemporary. It's, you know, it's of the times, <laughs> lots of interesting typography and visuals to look at. Us designers are fairly, fairly uh, fickle bunch. We like things to look pretty. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this, this is going to look pretty. Cool. Do you do a lot of public speaking at conferences? I wouldn't say a lot. I've probably presented just a handful of times, really. I can count in one hand probably the number of times I presented, but I've had some local colleges who will ask me, like accelerators or programs that colleges have that are related to product design or design will ask me to come and talk to one of their classes or something like that. So I've done that a few times. I was part of another AIGA event a few years ago before COVID where I talked about or I presented a case study that was the the theme of the of the event was like case studies and case studies projects that you've worked on. So I presented then, which was a few years ago, and then like I mentioned just a few weeks ago with this most recent one. So not a lot, but you know, I was happy to hear that some of the feedback that I also got recently was that someone said that my presentation flowed very smoothly and they got the impression that I did it all the time. I'm like, well, thank mm. you very much. That's probably the best most flattering compliment that I, you know, that I feel like I got this evening. So I was happy to hear that. Nice. I mean, I hope you get a chance to to give that talk at other conferences. I mean, you put that much time into designing it and you're getting this great feedback, like take it out on the road, you know? Yeah. You know what? Somebody else mentioned that. I think I, I will, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, I might do that. So let's talk more about you being a freelance senior product design generalist. You had mentioned that before. I was like, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. <laughs> and according to your website, as well as what you just said, you are the the invisible hand that crafts the products that you rely on daily. And you've been doing it for such a long time. I mean, almost 13 years. That is super impressive. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I've worked in all sorts of industries on, you know, all types of projects. Early in my career, I worked with a bunch of on a bunch of apps in the education space that taught kids how to write or do math. Mm-hmm. I also worked on a project for the brand Pull-Ups, where I did a lot of UX and UI for an app that parents use to potty train their kids. Let's see some other memorable projects that come to mind are product design for a healthcare startup, which is akin to like an Angie's List for healthcare workers. I did iconography for OkCupid, where I created dozens of icons that reflect the interest and the characteristics that people show on their dating profile. I did 
data visualizations for Bright House Networks, which was bought by Charter Communications or Spectrum Charter, I believe. Mm-hmm. But more recently, I've done work for this company called The Standard, which is this wellness and social networking app. And they're kind of still in this amorphous phase where they're establishing their value proposition. I've helped this company called True Anthem. And they're out of California and they have this AI powered social publishing tool. And basically the, the gist of it is that large scale content publishers like the Associated Press or Reuters or NBC News give their social teams access to this dashboard where they can automate their social media posts and understand all of the analytics around what content performs the best and when to post it and where to post it to. So it's this dashboard that integrates with all the popular social networking platforms, you know, Facebook, X, Instagram, et cetera. Last, I guess I won't forget to mention Ford. I've helped them on and off over the years. I've worked on their website, helping to think through different visual concepts to present features and promotions. I've also done a lot of work on what they call the build-in price section of their website, which is the part where you customize a vehicle to that you're interested in buying. And that area of the site in particular is in constant flux, and they go through many iterations to push out even the smallest of changes. So I've helped with the UX and the UI there, as well as, again, lots of iconography for uh, that section of their website. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the overview. (laughs) Now, you've mentioned like a lot of different clients here and a lot of different sort of types of product design work that you've done. What are the best types of clients for you to work with? You know, I work on B2B and B2C types of projects. I tend to find the B2C ones a bit more, I guess, compelling to work on because the tone that you take in terms of the writing, the UX writing that you do for it, any kind of light copywriting that I might do, not, don't get me wrong, I'm not a copywriter, <laughs> but any of the, I think just the way that you approach a consumer is very different than the way you approach like a business product or service. Now, I definitely do both, but I think I probably get a little bit more fun out of the B2C ones. There's just more room to kind of, I, I feel like those apps and services are a bit just more entertaining if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Is there any type of work that you want to do in the future? Like, you know, dream projects, anything like that? You know what? I have always been of this mindset to, you know, I'm like, okay, it could be fun to work on like in the entertainment industry specifically, like maybe for some type of like celebrity website or something like that. But then, you know, the more I think about it and the more I see how other industries work with certain types of media, I would imagine that it's probably a more difficult ask to do some of that work. Quicker turnarounds, probably projects that you imagine might go a certain way, maybe don't because you're answering to maybe people who have, maybe my idea of what it's like is totally different than what it's actually like. I'm starting to think that that might be the case. So in the past, I've always thought that maybe I'll work on entertainment stuff, but like, maybe not. I think what I have going for me now, which is a variety of types of work that come my way is a great kind of mix because at times I'm working on very UX heavy work. Then at other times I'm working on very UI heavy work. And I think just the mix of projects is what keeps me most interested, right? It's almost like you never get bored. So you like to have that variety, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
you know, that's one of the main draws to freelancing is that you get to pick the types of projects that you work on, Mm -hmm. you know, in the mix. So if you're ever feeling too much of something, you can say, okay, well, this next inquiry that comes in, I won't take that. I'll take this other thing because, you know, my plate's full in that other area. So Yeah. yeah, that's definitely a plus. You know, one thing that we've been talking about on the show pretty regularly over the past two years is kind of how a lot of this new tech is encroaching upon the creative industry. Maybe encroach is not the right word, but it's starting to infiltrate into like the tools that we use, the way that certain businesses now offer new services, et cetera. I'm curious with what you do. Have you seen any like trends or changes in the industry, particularly as it relates to like AI or like generative AI or something like that? Generative AI is pretty much seems like it's working its way into everything. ChatGPT has, you know, all of the, like Dolly and all of those types of services. Photoshop, just typing in something and generating it on the spot. It is totally changing the way that we work, the way that I work. Like many people, I think that we're in this phase where we're just trying to understand how do we make our businesses kind of bulletproof against some of these new technologies. I think at times people have this idea about like, or this feeling that like, okay, I can't wait to things get back to how they were. They're not going back. This is kind of like, you know, we're here now. It's just going to kind of keep on happening. And I don't want to say get worse, but there's going to be kind of more of this need to reinvent yourself, to come up with ways to stay marketable and relevant. I mean, have you been using it any in your work or or no? I use ChatGPT for sure. Now, I tend to have it refine my work. So if I'm writing something, whether it be uh, some text for a website or for anything, I like to use ChatGPT to refine my work instead of just be the kind of creator of it. I'll say that one phenomenon that I'm kind of, that I do notice is that I tend not to recognize my writing if ChatGPT kind of manipulates it too much. And I think that that might be like a phenomenon that people may start to realize. Like I've experimented with it. For example, commenting on a blog post or some type of like Medium article that I saw where I've experimented with using ChatGPT to write my response, haphazardly type something out, pop it in the ChatGPT, have it rewrite it, make it sound good, and then post it. Then go back and read it like a month, two months later. I'm like, okay, did I actually write that? I don't remember <laughs> writing that. So that's this phenomenon that I'm noticing with ChatGPT. So I use it and I've learned to, obviously it's still fairly new or I'm new to it, but I try to use it more sparingly so that the work is my work and I recognize it as such. So, but in terms of like design work, not as much there. I'd say more in the lines of like text, right? Mm-hmm. I don't feel like the image generators are exactly up to kind of the level that I would want them to be at, they're helpful if you want to maybe change something small in an image. But they all have this overly smooth look if you try to generate an image from scratch. I'm sure that's going to change in the future. But for right now, I don't use it extensively in in the kind of visual work that I do. It's just not capable. Yeah, we've had folks that have come on the show before that say they use it kind of like as a mood board or as inspiration. Like it's a great way to to help spin up ideas if you have maybe some ambiguity on where to start. It can kind of give you a nudge in that direction, but there still has to be discernment from humans, of course, the ones that are going to be using that stuff 
to decide how it should be used, if it should be used at all, if it should be changed, et cetera. So it seems like you have a pretty kind of discerning nature about how you use it. Yeah, most definitely. It's going to change quickly, I might add too. I think that there's always this kind of impression that like, oh, this is more off. Well, you know, technology is kind of exponential, you know, in many ways. So while it's not there yet, it's probably going to be there (laughs) faster than I expect. So I guess fingers crossed, I've got I've got a little bit more um, time to be uh, employed. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's kind of, you know, switch it up a little bit here. We've talked a lot about the work that you're doing, but let's learn more about you, about the person behind the invisible hand, so to speak. You mentioned before we started recording, you're in the Metro Detroit area. Is that where you're from originally? Yeah, I've always been in this area. Went to school in Westland. I had a class in graphic design there. And then, you know, I was, I guess early on though, I was kind of always interested in drawing, you know, by hand, that's kind of where it all started. Drawing on paper, Mortal Kombat characters. Mm -hmm. I remember when The Lion King came out, I used to, and I got a computer, then I started drawing in like Microsoft Paint Lion King characters. Yeah. So I grew up in Westland, or went to school in Westland rather. Then I went over to the Grand Rapids area for school for my degree. Mm-hmm. And after I graduated, came back and started working at this. I worked at J. Walter Thompson, which is this worldwide advertising agency. They have offices all over. So I was working on regional advertising campaigns. That was technically an internship, but it was after I graduated and I was actually making money and working on projects. So it's kind of strange, but that was an internship. It was after I graduated. So I did that for a year. And then I started working, once that internship ended, I worked at this full service ad agency, which is again in the Metro Detroit area. And I was doing all types of things. Any creative task that came through the agency, I had my hand in it. So they were full, full service. They did out of home, digital, print, radio, TV. Mm-hmm. So I was the senior art director there and I did that for about six years. And I decided to kind of break off and do my own thing. Well, before we kind of get into that, I want to just kind of step back a little bit to talk about your time at Kendall, because I'm I'm sure if you sort of had this this sort of talent as a child where you really were drawing and into this sort of stuff, and then you wanted to pursue it enough where you went to school, do you feel like your time at Kendall kind of prepared you for getting out there in the world as a designer? I do think it did. Again, things are constantly in flux, right? Stuff that you learn. I was in college, you know, in 2000. Four. So mm-hmm. obviously things that I learned back then are not necessarily relevant today, but for the time, you know, at the time, yes, it did prepare me. Now that said, I did find that I had to, or I, you know, I'm the type to push myself to learn new things. So even though, you know, I did feel like some of the courses and things like that, I learned a lot, but I didn't think that they were, you know, challenging me as much as I could challenge myself. So I would take it you know, upon myself to kind of just do whatever I could to be learning new things mm-hmm. and challenging myself. It's a great program. I learned a lot there, but learning is never done. You have to constantly learn new software, things that the programs that we were using back then practically don't exist now. Right. There's things that you were doing then just not relevant. So for the time, it was great, but I know much more uh, now than I did back then. No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if you were in college in, in 2004, I'm just thinking sort of what design tools were out there. I mean, I think everything was pretty much 
Macromedia or Adobe. This is before they, I want to say 2004 is before they merged. Cause I, I distinctly remember using fireworks like right around that time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I remember Dreamweaver first being Macromedia Dreamweaver before it became Adobe Dreamweaver. But just in terms of like, I'm thinking, yeah, software and things like that. There's so much changing in visual communications during that time period, I think also because and you, you know, maybe you saw this when you went out into the world after graduating, but like companies were then starting to realize how to have a visual presence online. Like prior to this, companies were still sort of trying to figure out, well, how do I get on the internet? Should I be on the internet? What should that look like? And by this time, like, you know, mid 2000s, companies are starting to figure it out. They're starting to sort of see how they can represent themselves or represent their brand or their product or their service online in a visual way. Yeah. So when I was in college, it was technically graphic design. So I only had, if memory serves, one, maybe two classes. And honestly, I think it was one, one class on like web design or anything like that. So all of my other things were print focused. You know, we were using, I wasn't, uh, Oh wow. we learned, I did learn cork, but I actually never used cork outside of school, like, or at least not to any degree, it was always InDesign. InDesign was like coming on the scene, right? When I was like going to school and graduating and and things like that. So all of my education was really centered around print design. You know, I had a couple of typography classes and Photoshop classes. And of course, all of your core studies, design fundamentals and all of those art history classes and things like that. Mm -hmm. But so I used GoLive which doesn't exist anymore. Oh man, I remember Go Live. <laughs> oh, you just took me back with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, you know what that program was nice for? Though? I loved the fact that you could, it was like designing in Photoshop or Illustrator in the sense that you could like lay something out on the canvas mm-hmm. and then you know, it turns it into like the design. So it was like, I mean, honestly, I only had one web design class and it wasn't until after I started working at that agency after my internship after college where I really started doing more digital work and web work, like everything else was like up until that point was very traditional advertising based. So, and that's actually one of the reasons I did kind of make the switch to full-time freelancers because I'm like, okay, I want to specifically work on digital products, mm-hmm. websites, apps, experiences, things like that. Yeah. During that time, you know, as you mentioned, you were kind of studying a lot of stuff with print. That's another thing is that the web was sort of changing from, I say in the early days, it felt like a lot of the web was just taking whatever was in print and directly putting it on the web, whether that was a scan or whether that was a table based layout or something. And so it sort of limited, I think, a lot of expression that brands or companies could have. But then I'd say right around, you know, not even too long after you graduated college, like 2005, 2006, things switched over to CSS. And then you could now float things across the page and change alignment in these ways that broke you out of this grid-based kind of print format that I think a lot of early design was in and it allowed you to sort of really kind of go outside the box with different types of design and, and things of that nature. So to me, it does make sense to freelance during that time because if you're working at a company, and I just know this because I did work at a company when that happened, it is so much hassle to change things internally <laughs> after you already have one set of processes, whether this is how it's always been done, or this is how we want to do it. As opposed to when you're a freelancer, you can change on a dime if you need to. You can just 
focus on a specific type of product or a t- different type of service, but you can adopt and change do things much quicker than like larger companies or larger firms or agencies can. Oh yeah, most definitely. And I think that you need to be able to do that, right? I've, mm-hmm. I've had the kind of luxury of being able to experiment with, all right, so what interests me? What are people asking for? What are people reaching out to me for? And I have a lot of interest in terms of the design space. So while that may not work for everybody, it worked for me because back in the day, I had people, independent app developers, for example, making their first app for the iPhone and they need somebody to design it. That was kind of how I got my intro into like designing for iOS was app developers reaching out to me saying they needed some design help. I'm like, hmm, this is fun. <laughs> so <laughs> let me try this. So I did that. So my degree is in graphic design, but due to my wide range of interests, I have been able to kind of like explore working in all aspects. So, and one of the things I've done is transition some of the skills that, that I've learned that apply to other design mediums into more marketable skills. So for example, an ability to like use Adobe Illustrator very well and make cool looking icons. Well, how that looks today for me is I use this program called Blender 3D. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call myself like a 3D artist, rather like I can make 3D, I'll call them illustrations because I'm not focusing on how to, you know, make something technically accurate for like 3D printing or for, you know, for the architecture space, right? It's more like, how can I add on this medium to enhance the product design work that I do, right? So if I'm creating a website or something like that or an app and it needs some cool animation or content to be designed that we want to manipulate, you know, when the user hovers their cursor over it or taps it or something like that, that's kind of where my my skills come into play. So I try to develop this skill set of deliverables that can all work together. Now, when you look back at your time at, at Quill, I know that was sort of what you mentioned prior before we <laughs> we talked about Kindle a little bit. You were there for almost six years. You were their senior art director. What sort of was the impetus for you to start your own business? Yeah, well, and to be clear, too, so I was a senior art director, but they were, we'll say, a small to medium-sized company. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were, it's not that we had a ton of people there. So the reason that I decided to leave is what you were asking. Is that right? Well, I guess you could say that. I mean, if unless that was sort of part of the reason for you wanted to start your own business, was that you wanted to leave? Well, I'll say that I was just maybe starting to plateau at the company. Maybe there wasn't enough kind of upward opportunity. And, you know, again, I also wanted to focus exclusively on digital products and services and, you know, versus having to work on print and radio and broadcast. Also, I feel like I, I was capable of executing the types of experiences myself that the firm's clients were looking for. So, you know, as is so often the case, pay was also starting to become an issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the end, I felt like, you know, I wasn't making enough as I could make. And I didn't see much evidence that that would change. So, you know, that said, I did learn a great deal about the ins and outs of how to run a business. One of the most important lessons I got to see firsthand was how clients don't hire you simply because you're good at what you do. They hire you because you're capable of doing the work and you're a likable person. You seem like you'd be fun to work with. But, you know, the agency was, again, small to mid-sized So in a sense, I kind of like shadowed the owners and I was able to learn how to talk to prospective clients and write proposals and run meetings and all of the other things they don't teach you in college. 
I think that's fair. You know, like you get to a point where you feel like you could do this yourself or you could maybe do it better and you strike out on your own. And that's what you did. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, too, people were, it made it easy because people were reaching out to me in my personal email and saying, Hey, Mm -hmm. can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? I'm like, okay, well, maybe I should try this. Yeah. I completely understand that because that's the same way that I started my business. I was working at AT AT&T and honestly hated it and just really felt like I could do better. I felt like I did reach that plateau where it's like, I don't know if this is going to get any better for me anywhere else. There were like other issues there too, just in terms of like the staff, but in terms of just your personal fulfillment as a designer, like I knew that I could be doing better work than this and could possibly be getting paid better. But like, this can't be like the, (laughs) this can't be the high point of my career is having a 15 minute lunch break on a 12 hour shift. Like this is not, (laughs) I can't do this. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, I I will say though, too, at the time it was in college, I was working at retail jobs and that's never fun. That's especially as a design person, you want to be doing work. That's like what you're going to school for. So like, you know, when I got that job, I'm like, and for the time that I was there, it was generally like, okay, this is where I need to be. Like I worked hard. It wasn't that I wasn't making any money. I was making good money, but I'm like, okay, I can make better money. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I get it. I a hundred percent get that. How were those early years of business? Freelancing early years business. You know, they were good. I would say that back then I found myself working on a lot of smaller projects, right? You know, projects that can be completed in a couple of days or a few hours versus these days. It's like, okay, it requires a week minimum or several weeks or several months. So, you know, back in the day, it was a lot of like, there were times where I'd be working for seven days a week. I'm like, okay, I'd start getting stressed out because I'm like, okay, too many small projects. Mm Mm-hmm constantly working. I was making enough money, but the problem I had back then was too many small projects, right? Once you start running out of time to work on them, then you get stressed. Mm -hmm. So as the years have ticked by, I've slowly kind of like expanded the scale of projects that I work on. And sometimes there's some ebb and flow there, right? It can be very busy. Sometimes it can be a little bit slower, but I would say in general, the scale of the projects have changed over the years. How do you approach a new project? Like say you're working with a client or something comes across, you know, in your inbox, like what does that intake process look like? I think probably the more interesting part would be like maybe my creative process. So it kind of starts with just asking a bunch of questions and understanding the problem to make sure I'm solving for the right thing. Mm -hmm. Suffice to say, there's this extensive fact finding, goal setting and planning process, but you know, maybe the creative process is a bit more, I'd say, unique or just my own. It starts with taking inspiration from everywhere. You know, I watch movies. I I think that medium inspires my creative process a lot. I think it's so different from product design that it makes it easy to come up with an original idea based on a narrative that I saw. You know, I think probably the most compelling creative ideas come from the mixing of unexpected connections that you can make between like topics that are not already connected. So it's almost like the magic comes from bringing those two concepts together in a a novel way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I try to take inspiration from everywhere and bring that work into the product design work that I do. In addition to that, I think, of course, surfing the web daily, you just come across things that naturally will someday 
work their way into inspiration for a project that I'll work on. So I keep like folders and, you know, interfaces and websites and illustrations and, and animations on my desktop to kind of just refer to. Mm-hmm. I do consider myself in the business of selling ideas. So I'll say this too, like often clients are eager to like spend a budget if you hit them with something that kind of strikes their imagination and, you know, having my go-to folders that I can inspire myself from is a good starting point. So actually one of the things I'll do to like jumpstart a creative process or like get a project off the ground and up and running is kind of like after I have like a meeting or a phone call with a prospective client, I will send them this preliminary or kind of like cursory email with some creative ideas and that'll get their wheels turning. And then the next thing I know, I've got them, you know, asking me to, you know, send a full proposal and, and then we're often working on a new project. Mm -hmm. When you look back over, I don't know, let's say like the past, we'll, we'll say five years, you know, we'll, we'll roll the pandemic into this. What would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned about yourself? Biggest lesson I've learned about myself. I don't know that I'd learned anything new. And maybe that's because I've been freelancing for way before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was kind of like clamoring when it all went down, getting their office set up, trying to understand how to freelance or work remotely. I'm like, I've been doing this for 10 years at the point that the pandemic started. So that was easy for me. I felt like I'm like, I've been social distancing for 10 years now. (laughs) 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 I already had everything set up. My billing software, my processes were in place. You know, I was able to experiment with different ways of working with clients. You know, do I work with them on a retainer? Do I work with them on a fixed price? What's my rate? Do I sign NDAs ahead of time or do I never sign NDAs? Like that was one of the things that I'm getting a little off track, but I think maybe a little bit relevant. Like I think that I very much enjoy the, am thankful for the fact that I was able to see what works and what doesn't work, which is different than working for somebody else, right? When you work for somebody else, they tell you what you can say in your email to the client. They tell you how to build. They tell you the process that you have to structure your files through. Those are all things that I got to do my way or just trial and error. I think there's something to be said for the ability to see what works and what doesn't work for yourself. Right. Again, I I guess I didn't learn. That wasn't new to me, but that was something that, you know, I imagine a lot of people probably started to get wind of when the pandemic hit and what they learned about themselves is probably some of those things that I had learned up up to that point. Mm -hmm. But you've been good. You're you're good. Yeah, I did. I've, I've, made, I've made all the mistakes. Um, you know, I have. Uh, I think that one of the things that I have learned over the years was that you know not everybody communicates the same way. I think that I have a very you know in the past I probably was much more direct than people that you know than people tend to be. Like if if I have a question about something or if I just legitimately think that the client needs to hear some particular feedback. <laughs> You know, I would just say it, but I learned that, okay, sometimes you can't just say it. You have to like, you have to ease them into it. And that's something that you can't, you know, if you're working for, uh, I guess, to bring my uh, a sharp point to this, this idea, it's like when you're working for somebody, they tell you that you can't say this when you're working for yourself, you can try it and see what happens. And I did, I certainly <laughs> did that. <laughs> so I made all the mistakes, but <laughs> I think I'm better for it. I got you. I, f- I feel you. Okay. So what are sort of the next steps of growth for your business? Like, where do you want to take it? I want to take it. You know, I think that I have always wanted to remain 
and you know, I guess a small business, like I don't have any employees and that's by design. I think with employees comes other headaches, right? You have to make sure that, well, I don't know, I don't have any employees, but I'm just guessing it's like you have to Mm -hmm. pay for insurance and all of those other things, many more expenses overhead. It's just a much different kind of like a ball game. I feel like I would be managing people more than I am doing work which is what I do now. You know, when clients reach out to me, they're looking for something to to get done. I mean, I think my business is, I'm happy with kind of where it's at. I've helped other clients of mine who say, they're like, oh, I wish I would have gone your route and not hired employees and just stayed small. Um, <laughs> so, many, so many fewer headaches to contend with. I had an attorney who I did work for who told me that. So uh, yeah, I, I think just, Based on my experience and things that I've heard, I think it's just as easy to stay small. Yeah. Where do you kind of pull strength from? Like what what motivates you to keep doing this work? Well, I've always been a creative person. I think creativity can manifest itself in many ways, right? So while I don't think I'll do product design forever, I will always be in the creative space. So, you know, for example, I used to play the piano for many years. I took classes in school. I took them, you know, outside of school. I had a, a my mom hired somebody to uh, take me to uh, get lessons from. So I've done music oriented, you know, endeavors. I've, like I mentioned, had an interest in drawing by hand. I then kind of transformed that into graphic design. Now I'm in product design. So I will always be in the creative space and the digital space. I think, um, you know, there's so many foundations to design that, you know, that are transferable, right? So all of the, all of the foundations, color, scale, contrast, repetition, light, texture, those things can apply to interior design, you know, print design, furniture design. So I, I very much see that I will be in some creative space. Now, which one that is uh, in the future, I'm not sure for the time being, it will be, you know, it's going to definitely be product design. But, you know, I think in the long term, I could see myself going into something in the probably in the fine art space. Right. I think my career for the most part up until this point has been commercial design. Right. It's about how to sell a product or a service or get somebody to take an action based on, you know, it's just it's 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 less art. Granted, there are a lot of visual components to the work that I do. But at the end of the day, it's not art because we're selling something or making something or convincing people or you know, educating people on why they want to buy a s- service or a product versus art or a personal expression that is more about like self-expression, right? So you think of like you know sculptures or paintings or you know woodwork or something like that. So I think in the future, my interest will probably be more in the in the focused on things that are not like consumer focused. Okay. Where do you see yourself in general in the next five years? I mean, I know we kind of talked a little bit about where you want to take the business, but when you when you look in the future based on where you are now, what kind of what kind of things do you want to be doing? You know, uh, especially with I'm very interested to see all of our AR and VR experiences start coming into play. I know that there are a lot of mixed reviews on how that's going to look in the future of the metaverse and all of that. Personally, I'm interested in working in that space, I, it, I think it's just going to be so new, right? A lot of the a lot of the work that we do in UX and UI design today for screens is, you know, there are, there are many design patterns and tried and true methods to pull from. I'm interested in 
establishing and working in and setting up kind of new paradigms and principles and and patterns for devices that are that are upcoming. So I'm very excited about the, the Vision Pro when that comes out. I'll probably start to, uh, to tinker around in in that space. I'll have to give me one of those when it comes out. Start designing, and I do imagine maybe a similar kind of uh, pattern as to what I experienced before, where you know if you are off- if I'm offering services that are tailored toward developers who are creating products for Vision Pro, they probably need some design assistance with it. So that's kind of me keeping up with the times. It's it's how can I tailor my services to uh, be in demand and where the market is going. So I, you know, uh, which is one of the reasons I actually had an interest in, in 3D. One, one of many reasons I've had an interest in 3D in the last few years is because, you know, I saw or I read that, you know, these types of experiences are coming and I wanted to be able to be able to um, create assets and just work in this space. So yeah, I'm, that that's an area I'm very excited about is VR. AR, you know, that type of work. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work? You know, where can they hire you? <laughs> where can they find all of that information online? Definitely at my website, which is jonathanpatterson.com. I am on X, John underscore Patterson. That's J-O-N underscore Patterson. Of course, LinkedIn. All right. Sounds good. Jonathan Patterson, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you really for for kind of diving deep into your business and kind of exploring, you know, why you do what you do, what you do in terms of, you know, services and things of that nature. I think it's important, especially now at this time when people, for one reason or another, might be out there trying to find their next path or like what the next thing is that they're going to do to really sort of see what someone who has been out here doing this for a long time is doing so they can, you know, maybe look at how they structure their work or their business. But I think, you know, what you're doing is great. I, I know you mentioned something about sort of having the work speak for itself and being the invisible hand. I'll tell you that once you start speaking, that kind of goes a little bit out the window. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> because, the, because the work doesn't have a mouth, you do. So it's like, as you start getting out there and like speaking more, and I think certainly as people really see more of you as well as the work, you'll take off for sure. I mean, certainly what you're doing now is, is really great work, but I'm excited to see where you go in the future. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Big thanks to Jonathan Patterson, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jonathan and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. 
The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on Instagram and Twitter. You can search for us at Revision Path, or you could follow us on Spotify or Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast, or you could leave us a message on our voicemail hotline. That's 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.